What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Many Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and I am full of New Year resolutions. Or are those worms? I might be full of worms. Today on the show, Happy New Fear! Let's discover fears you didn't even know you had with some horrifying creatures. Take a one-way trip to Decapitation Station, check out some very creepy babies, and endure the existential crisis after finding out when a butt is not a butt. Discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, is 80 worms too many worms to have inside of you? It's a new year, a fresh start, but New Year's Eve can be anxiety-inducing for some, even depressing. A 2012 study conducted in Britain found that one in six people found New Year's Eve to be the saddest day of the year, according to The Telegraph. Some psychologists think this is due to the stress of the holidays, compounded by the stress of self-reflection that the new year brings. Personally, I get overwhelmed by the idea that I have to make a fresh start for the new year, and I worry about things not improving in the world. I think maybe instead of avoiding fears of the new year, we should do a bit of radical acceptance. Instead of trying to dodge your fears, you accept them. Bad things might happen, worms might invade your body, but that's okay and I accept it. I accept those worms. So today on the show, I want to trawl through the animal world for scary things, fears I never even knew I had until now, to confront them and find beauty in them. Maybe. Joining me today are the wonderful women of the Night Call podcast, Molly, Tess, and Emily. So could you guys go around and introduce yourselves so people get a feel for your voices? Hey, I'm Molly Lambert and sitting next to me, Emily Yoshida and sitting next to me, Tess Lynch and I'm sitting next to Katie. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and that's me. I'm Katie. <laughs> people can't uh, keep our voices clear. Usually. Sometimes I can't either. Yeah, it gets so, so good luck to everybody out good there luck. hearing us for the first time. Well, you, you'll be able to recognize my voice by the uh, terrible things that come out of it. So... <laughs> 
Uh, in this section, I did want to say, I usually name my sections, but I don't always say what they are. But this time, I'm really proud of it. I call this section, What Is This, A Horror Movie for Ants? Because we are going to talk about some of the most horrible things that can happen to you if you're an ant. So do you guys remember the Peter Jackson movie, Brain Dead or Dead Alive? Mm-hmm. Peter Jackson, before he Pete made Lord Jackson. of the Re- Rings. I'm going to make some zombies. <laughs> uh, he has it's a it's a zombie movie. It's like someone gets bitten by like a Sumatran rat monkey or something. And then they go they get the zombie virus and then they start biting other people and then they all turn into zombies. And there's this famous scene where this woman is pregnant and her baby has the zombie virus and it like crawls up through her out of her I guess from her uterus to her head, which can't really happen. But you know, let's suspend. But he has a zombie virus. He has a zombie virus, and (laughs) that's wrong. And the baby just like explodes out of the woman's head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that classic Peter Jackson. Yeah, (laughs) that's how. I mean, that's that's what giving birth is, right? Yeah, Yeah, essentially. If you're Zeus. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a tiny fly, in fact, the world's smallest known fly, does something even more horrifying to ants. So this is a new fly that was discovered in Thailand, and it's smaller than a grain of salt. It's called Uriplatia nanakihali. It's a species from the group Forid, which is also known as scuttleflies, also known as coffin flies. And in the this genus of flies, the Pseudoacteon, contains many flies that prey on ants in horrible ways. So this tiny fly, the Uriplatia, lays their eggs inside the body of the ant. And generally they target acrobat ants, which are also quite small, but they're bigger than the fly. So you're an ant. You're just walking along, minding your own ant business. Uh, Tess, this is going to be fun for you because you hate ants. I hate ants. And <laughs> I, yeah, I, I really hate ants. And I know too much about ants now, but I don't know anything about what's about to happen to this. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're going to like this because this is a horrible, very sadistic thing that happens to this ant. So the, the li- this little teeny tiny fly lays eggs inside of the ant's body. As the eggs develop into larvae, they migrate up into the ant's head and feeds on its jaw muscles, which makes it unable to open and close its mouth. But they're not done yet. Then they (laughs) migrate up into the ant's brains and eat the brains, which causes the ant to shamble around like a zombie for up to two weeks of this torture. What? How is that possible? Do ants even live for two weeks? Yes. (laughs) Not in Tess's house. (laughs) And then the larva decapitates the ant by dissolving the membrane that keeps its head attached to its body. And the larva will live inside the decapitated ant head for another two weeks until they molt into adults. Ah, No! And then that adult fly will burst out of the ant's head and just go around its business. So it's like the ant or the fly that's laying the egg is just like sees the ant walking by and is like, ah, oh, my per- my dream home, my dream. Like crib. that's where I want to raise yes. my children. How do they? <laughs> how do they get into the ant to lay the eggs in the first place? The usually the fly. A lot of these parasitoid uh, flying animals will have an ovipositor that they stick inside of the animal. So basically, they're just injecting their eggs. Whoa. Yeah. Does the ant? I wonder if the ant, like, fights it off. You know, there are certain 
bugs that will try to do that. So I don't know if we know whether these ants try to fight it off. We do know that cockroaches and spiders have developed strategies to try to avoid parasitic wasps from laying eggs on them and attacking them. So cockroaches actually employ a karate kick in midair. So they like jump up and like kick the wasp to try to avoid being turned into a mindless zombie when the wasp lays its eggs in its head. And spiders will actually roll up into a ball and tumble down a hill to try to avoid parasitic wasps. Wow. Because wow. I didn't know that ants, I knew ants were social within their yes. own colonies, but then I was reading recently about how certain species of invasive ants are will take over other ant colonies and not necessarily kill the ants in that colony. They'll enslave them. Yeah, they'll enslave them. And then there's the whole thing with the ants and the aphids that mm -hmm. I just go on about forever. But it's basic. I mean, it just blows my mind. Yeah. That they will, they protect the aphids, but they won't let the aphids leave. So they tear, they bite off their wings I would and say, they milk them. And I would say they're not necessarily protecting the aphids. They are keeping the aphids as live larder prey. Yes. So but don't they bring them into their into their anthills yeah, and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So they, they it's a interesting relationship and some there are different types of relationships that ants have with aphids. Some ants are mutualistic so they kind of they they protect the aphids and re return for sucking some of the juices out of the aphids and the aphids may try to cooperate more with the ants evolutionarily speaking and in, in in exchange for that protection a lot of the relationships is it's not so mutualistic where the ants are clearly just preying on the aphids but they do protect them to some extent so that they can continue to prey on the aphids but yeah. they'll overall have a negative impact on the aphid population so it's a very it, it depends on the species and it depends on the conditions whether it's going to be mutualistic or predatory and another relationship that ants have with another organism is the ant fungus mutualism have you heard of this so, no. so ants actually will cultivate fungus and essentially farm it. So especially leafcutter ants. So there's all sorts of species of ants that cultivate all sorts of species of fungus. But the sort of highest order is how the leaf ants interact with a fungus. And the, the fungus has co-evolved with the ant to the point where the fungus can't survive without the ant and the ant can't survive without the fungus. So leafcutter ants will actually cut up leaves and then bring them to the fungus and feed them to the fungus because the fungus likes to feed on this fresh biomaterial. And then the ants will also, they have a bacteria on them that actually acts as an antimicrobial for the fungus and they will feed from the fungus. And these fungus that have co-evolved with the ants actually have this little like bulb on the tip that contains nutrients that makes it really easy for the ant to just like suck a little bit of nutrients from the fungus. Whoa. What and does the fungus look like? It's kind of a go goopy. Goop. But it has <laughs> like knees. That's so interesting. I never thought that an, a fungus would have like a preferred diet. Really? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, the ants will specifically choose types of leaves that are not toxic to the fungus. So they'll pay attention to how the fungus reacts to the leaves. Wow. Some researchers think they can smell like distress signals from the fungus and then they'll like get rid of the the leaves that aren't doing it for them and get new ones. They're like doing science. They're doing, yeah, they're like tending, <laughs> they're cultivating this fungus. And they're doing trial and error with that's this yeah. fungus. so cool. That's amazing. It's a relationship that's taken around 30 million years to develop. 
it's pretty that's pretty the intense. stuff that always blows my mind about the stuff for the or the fly laying the eggs that travel to the ants heads how many years did that process take to probably, become refined probably millions yeah it's insane because it's, it's it so takes a long time it feels so much more complex yes. than i mean i guess if you'd never seen a human before and you were and you described you know how humans procreate or something it would seem needlessly complex maybe but that also seems like insanely complex well we have all sorts of really complex interactions happening inside of our bodies like you right. know mitochondria is very very early on in the development of animals it may have been a mutualistic relationship between the animal cell and the mitochondria so yeah it, it is pretty incredible these really weird and sometimes horrible relationships um, uh, speaking of which, <laughs> I want to talk about the Pessinae beetle, which has a pretty creative way of taking advantage of ants and their kind of buttholes, which is a joke that will become funny once I explain what goes on with these. So they are found in the rainforests of Costa Rica. Few dare to attack army ants because they are very aggro. They are very pugnacious. They can take down scorpions and dismember them. They oh can God. sting snakes and birds to death. Researchers have recently discovered a strange affliction that these ants have, and some ants have two butts, and they were really confused. They found these ant specimens that had two butts, and it's like you find a two-butted animal, you got to collect it and research it. So they collected some of these two-assed ants, and they studied them only to discover that the extra butt was not a butt at all. It was a beetle disguised as an ant butt. What? Why? <laughs> How big is this ant? Ant size, normal ant normal size. Ant size? Normal ant size. It's yeah. It's a tiny beetle. Yeah, it's a tiny 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 beetle. The beetle it has, its whole MO is to disguise itself as the ant butt. It clamps down on the ant's abdomen and looks like an extra ant gaster. And the gaster is that little sort of bulb, bulb. at the end of the ant which if you can describe it in any sort of humanoid way, it's the butt part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is, the beetle is called Nymphister cronorae, but I like to call it the ass-eating beetle because, you know, it's easier to pronounce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so why it mimics the ant's but is somewhat of a mystery. The ants themselves depend on pheromones to navigate. They actually have, they're nearly blind. They're not quite totally blind, but they only can tell like light and dark. Uh, so they can't see a butt. It, it could be that they've mimicked the ant butt to protect it from other predators. So other predators just see a weird ant with two butts. It is also, this is the most compelling theory to me is that it's very structurally similar to the ant's butt. So keeps the ants from suspecting anything if they feel up the fake butt. So like they're feeling the fake butt. If it just feels like another ant's butt, they're not going to think it's a, a beetle just piggybacking on that them. Makes sense. But ant. doesn't the ant who's the host feel the beetle on its butt? I don't know. It may feel the initial thing. And then if it can't like get, get it off, it it's probably just gives up. Yeah, and it I, can't like reach it to attack. Probably, it, it may be able to. I, I'm. It's this is actually a pretty recent discovery, so I'm not exactly sure what mechanisms the beetle employs to prevent the ant from knowing what's going on. That's so crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's just kind of like it feels like a butt. It looks like a butt. It walks like a butt. So the ants just assume it's a butt. <laughs> <laughs> and the the question is that you guys have, and I think a lot of people would have, is why it does this. Mm. 
And scientists don't actually know. <laughs> so all its life, it just wanted to be a it butt. It just wants to be a butt. <laughs> Most likely, it's feeding on something either from the ant or around the ant. It could be for protection from other predators. It could be for dispersal to be able to travel safely with the ants. Um, could be a weird fetish. I don't know. It's it's truly a mystery. I mean, if we, if we know that ants can farm and do a scientific method, then beetles surely can have sexual fetishes. I'm sure they, I'm, I'm sure it's just like, you know, have you ever just wanted to be a butt, you know? All the time. All the time. Honestly. I wonder the... if it's eating some, if it's, I mean, I don't want to get scatological. Is it eating something in the vicinity of the original it butt? Be, it could be eating anal secretions. Or eggs. Okay. Could be eating eggs. It could be eat you know feeding from the ant itself Ooh. uh it, it's hard to know it's a very I, I think those are all good theories <laughs> i guess we won't know until we've d- dived deeper into this butt mystery <laughs> <laughs> do you have a fear of ants spiders or other insects many people do and one way to face these fears is through the magic of the marvel cinematic universe No, really. So a study conducted in Israel by social scientists Ben Ezra and Hoffman found that phobias of spiders and ants can be helped by viewing the Spider-Man and Ant-Man movies, being being shown just a few seconds of each movie lowered their spider and ant phobia scores, implying that a positive cultural association with the superheroes may help to quell those fears. I guess seeing a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man and Paul Rudd frolic among their spider and ant motifs reduces the visceral phobia of these insects. Maybe Batman was right. Not that he'd be able to help Gotham more by romping around in tights than just using his massive wealth to help the poor, but that by embracing his bat fears by making a festive outfit and accessories, he could overcome those fears. When we return, we'll discuss some fears that I never even knew I had until now. And simultaneously, we'll overcome them. Maybe we'll try. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier, connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. 
someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Imagine you're frolicking near the deep, dark woods. Why are you near the deep, dark woods? Maybe you're picking some berries or about to go to grandma's house or you have some sort of tree fetish. I'm not here to judge. As you stop to admire a particularly cool piece of lichen, you hear the faint but unmistakable cry of a baby coming from deep in the forest. You look around. There's no one around. You're way too horny for trees to remember your phone. So it's up to you to save this baby. You walk into the deep, dark woods towards the sound of the crying baby. Poor little thing, out here, all alone. Its cries become more frantic, so you hurry over, now deep in these woods, disoriented. The sound is close now, but you can't see any baby. Where is it? The cries seem to come from up above you. You look into a tree, too. Huge golden eyes stare back at you, and from its drooling jaws you hear the sound of that crying baby. But only now do you notice how strangely alien it sounds. Before you can even begin to understand what's going on, the giant creature leaps down from the tree and snaps your neck. So, you have been the victim of the Margay jungle cat. And it's a very cute cat. <laughs> and it also likes to murder. Let me give, show you a picture of this vicious killer. Oh, my God. Oh, it's a baby. Oh, it's a little anime cat. It's funny that you should say it's a baby because that is a bit of its M.O. So the Margay is a very cute jungle cat. It lives in South American forests. It's nocturnal it is pretty small it looks a bit like an ocelot with really big eyes it's like a kitten it's yeah. like it does look like a kitten it and looks it's, like justin bieber's pet cat <laughs> a he lot. Has, does justin bieber have a pet cat he is got it, some some kind of semi-exotic cat i don't know yeah. if they're ocelots or not oh, bieber you don't don't get exotic pets I bieber. Know, bieber stop it they're bieber, really stop it they're really cute it is probably really cute though so they're pretty small they only weigh about five to eight pounds they're very skilled climbers and they hunt small animals and birds so in order to get themselves proper meals, sometimes they have to rely on very clever tricks, especially given one of their prey of choice, which is Pied Tamarin, a small monkey that looks half like a baby Yoda, half goblin. Of course, I'm going to show you a picture of oh, this. Yeah. Whoa. Oh, my God. That looks like the boss you have to beat to win the game. It no, looks, that's so scary. I love it. It looks like, but doesn't it look like half orc, half baby Yoda? 
It does. Mm, it doesn't have Baby Yoda's giant endearing eyes the way that no, the Margay cat Baby Yoda does. Ears, yeah, right? that's sure. a threatening animal to yeah. me. Yeah, it, really, it looks wise. It looks austere. It, it looks, looks really humorless. It looks bossy. It looks like me. Klaus Kinski. I wish, we, yes, I wish that guy would smile more. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to our roast of the Pied Tamarind <laughs> with Bob Saget. <laughs> so in order to lure a Pied Tamarind, the Margay imitates the sound of a baby monkey, which is terrifying, deeply, deeply terrifying. So observation suggests that this behavior is passed from Mother Margays to her offspring who watch her hunt. And what they'll do is they mimic the kind of soft squeaking sound that baby tamarins make, which lures adult tamarins out to investigate because tamarins are very social and like humans, they want to respond to the cries of a baby. So I don't th- there there have been observa- multiple observations of this they've never caught it on video so sadly i don't have a sound sample so instead i'm going to do my best impression of what i think a margay imitating a tamarind baby would sound like <clears throat> hang on let me get a sip of water here oh boy i'm very excited <laughs> me for too. this me <laughs> <laughs> It's like the world's biggest mosquito. Yeah. Me, 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 I'm a little baby. I don't want to eat you, for I'm a baby. Wow. It's really convincing. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a baby. I'm gonna care for that baby. Please come take care of me. So. What is really interesting about this to me is that I looked into it and throughout basically all of human culture, there are mythological creatures that prey on people by imitating babies. And it's really eerie because this seems to indicate this deep instinctive human fear across like all cultures. And I want to talk about a few of these. And you may you guys may know some of these already. The Bubak, I'm sure I'm probably not pronouncing that right. It's from Czech folklore and it is basically a boogeyman that looks like a scarecrow and it wears the clothing made out of the souls that it has Ah. harvested. (laughs) I don't know how a soul fabric is. Would that be like a taffeta? Oh, it's terrifying. It looks like Slender Man. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's It's like, um, it looks like very Return to Oz. I think souls wear like an Eileen Fisher linen. Okay. That's what I would wear. Oh, that is really scary. It is a little Eileen Fisher. Would that be hard to sew? I don't know much about sewing. Like, would sewing a soul, is that, has that got like a weird grain that would be hard to sew? No, I think it's pretty straightforward. You can do a seam, a hidden seam there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Bubek has a big following on deviant art. Oh, really? Do they, do they like, uh, do they pair Bubek with like Slenderman or something? Yeah, it's gotta be Thelma and Louise. The one true pairing. The one <laughs> the one true scaring. Yeah. <laughs> so the Bubak drives a cart that's pulled by cats, which seems um inefficient, but okay. And it makes the sound of a crying baby to lure in victims. So that's uh that's pretty wee <laughs> baby. 
Ooh, that's so scary. Me. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. The cart with the cats is so funny. I know. <laughs> you know, one time I actually I thought I heard like a kitten mewling in a bush and I was like trying to find it and couldn't. And that was the scariest. Oh, but I was no, also I, like, saw, I thought I heard a kitty crying from a gutter and I looked in the gutter and I couldn't see a kitty. I'm like, I'm about to get it. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I'm about to totally. get it. It was like I was like digging through the bush trying to find yeah. this kitten because it was like sounded like it was in trouble. Yeah. But then I was like, what if it's like a, a rat king? Yeah. <laughs> or like a possum or yeah. something. Well, then I'll have to have fun. a baby yeah. possum. Then yeah. I'll have to Possums adopt a fun. possum kitten. You're already going down that road, Molly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dropping hints. So the Pontianak is a vampire ghost woman in Malay and Indonesian folklore. So these are the spirits of women who have died during childbirth. And these are, I guess, angry ghosts because they kill their victims by digging into their body and eating their organs. Fun fact about this vampire ghost lady is that sometimes she lives in banana trees. I'm not precisely sure why. But it's just, I think potassium. it's potassium. Like potassium. Yeah. That's right. This says here that pregnant. it's specifically the, right, it's the ghost <laughs> of a woman who died in childbirth. It's yeah. pretty macabre, isn't it? But I mean, I it, think that's, it's a lot of the ways that we cope with scary things. Yeah. And like, that's a really scary thing is by. It was also so story. common for so long. Her presence can sometimes be detected by a nice floral fragrance identifiable as plumeria, <laughs> followed by an awful stench. Resembling a decaying body. Whoa. Yeah. The, the Indian version, the churail, can be identified by her feet turning backwards just before her transformation into her vampire. That is so <laughs> scary. <laughs> For some reason, that's a bridge too far. That's, that's really very ring like. It's like, yeah. Whoa, what kind of dance step is that? Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, oh my she God. also comes during a full moon and announces her presence with a baby cry. So, you know, that's... We just had a full moon. Yeah. We did. We'll run into Did you one. hear any babies and smell any plumeria? <laughs> it says you got to put a nail in the nape of her neck to kill her. Oh, I thought it was a nail in the nape of the neck to transform her into a good wife. Oh, but then if you, yes. If you You're remove right. the nail, You're right. it turns then she her, goes it, back into if ghost you put vampire the nail, form. If you put the nail in the hole, it turns her into a beautiful woman. <laughs> and what? And a the good nail wife. comes out. And if comes. you pull that nail out. It's like, it's like, can you imagine just like having a bad day as a woman and, and like someone just like, who removed your ghost yeah. nail? <laughs> <laughs> or uh, somebody just tries to shove a nail into your oh, neck because they're yeah, like, be gone, demon woman. I feel, like, I feel like 10 times out of 10, that's not going to work. Right. <laughs> so uh, Bigfoot, this is a l fact I didn't know about Bigfoot, is that in certain Bigfoot lore, people who believe Bigfoot is a predator, they say that. Bigfoot can mimic the cries of a baby to lure people deep into the woods. So that's interesting. I've always thought of Bigfoot as more of like a big old hippie. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. Totally. Off the grid. Off the grid. Living their life. Yeah. And then another spirit is the Wendigo, and it is from the folklore of Algonquian peoples in the Nova Scotia, Eastern and Great Lakes areas of Canada. And it's associated with sort of like winter starvation. And it's either a monster or a spirit who can possess humans. And its influence causes evil acts such as cannibalism, murder, greed, and environmental destruction. Or conversely, it is sort of summoned or created by these evil acts. 
And in some stories, it can mimic the cry of a person or child in need of help, which is really creepy. Did you guys see that uh, video game Until Dawn? It mm -hmm. had the, the Wendigos in it and probably not accurately represented, right. to be fair. But they do have a scene where the Wendigo lures a character by pretending to be a girl crying for help. And then if you go, you get decapitated. Ah! <laughs> the Wendigo is pretty famous, right? Because there's an mm -hmm. Ogden Nash poem about the Wendigo. And then I think it's also in um, Creatures of the, the Lumberwoods. Well, this says a lot mm. of it has to do with people becoming cannibals. They would say they had Wendigo fever. Right. Wendigo oh. psychosis. Yeah, which I think is also... That's a pretty controversial topic because a lot of that is basically like white people coming in and potentially misunderstanding the culture and the folklore and sort of just like giving this label to things like, well, that, there's a Wendigo psychosis. <laughs> and I think one thing that's interesting is in a lot of stories, it is sort of like a metaphor. So it's like a conceptual representation of human greed and gluttony and evil acts. So it's not always meant to be taken literally as a as a physical creature. There are some stories in which it is a physical creature, which is like a gaunt, gray-skinned, skeletal-like Slenderman creature. But in a lot of cases, it's almost like a manifestation of our evil and mm -hmm. sort of this um, both spiritual or metaphorical sense, which I think is interesting. Yeah. And I think it is interesting, this idea that this, it still has that myth of like a fake cry for help. And I think that it, it, it's like um, in all of these stories, this idea that we could be taken advantage by one of our greatest features, which is our empathy for the helpless, especially helpless baby. And that, sort of chilling juxtaposition of like a crying baby and a predator is mm -hmm. really scary. And I have to wonder if there's something now, I don't know, I don't have any strictly like solid evidence for this, but I do wonder if like deep in our evolutionary history, if we had these fears of some predator, like a big cat, uh, because I know jaguars and, and some of these big cats also use similar methods to lure and prey. Like if we kind of have this this fear of something imitating our young and then luring us out and then preying on us and i don't know that's fast I, I, I maybe it's also kind of a warning against making like having empathy become a vulnerability or or the right. fear that like by taking care of someone else that you could put yourself you could mm -hmm. neglect your own needs, right. put yourself in danger kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, because that the evil, the evil baby, the sin, the baby crying and you walk towards it and it's a trap. It's just it's almost ubiquitous in every human huh. culture. It's so and, interesting. And so, mu so many stories. Yeah. Wow. What if baby Yoda is really a parasite? <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Yeah. I like that theory. We don't know anything. It, about. We are. It is a cultural parasite because I cannot step. You can't yeah. spit and not hit a baby Yoda. You yeah. know, like you can't take two steps without tripping over baby Yoda on these social medias. I mean, the thing about baby Yoda too is there's just one of them, but if there were like a million, oh, if there were a million baby Yodas washed oh, up yeah. on a beach, ooh, uh -huh. we'd all be frightened. We would be frightened. I mean, like they have <laughs> telekinetic powers. They they have the force, which, you know, is presented as good, but it's a baby. As soon as it gets mad, it's just gonna smash you around like mm -hmm. a like a big old rattle. Mm -hmm. The only reason we're not scared of baby Yoda is that we're led to believe he's a wise baby because he's Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> those, I mean, the, he's got those little wrinkles. Mm -hmm. you know he's what? seen a lot of life. I mean, yeah. some babies 50. do come out really wrinkly. They look like little oh, yeah. old people. 
A lot of babies. Yeah, my brother came out as a little, little wrinkly. He looked, he had that cute old man face when he came out. Oh. Was he either premature or late? Do you know? He was not. I wouldn't say late, but he came out a little later than his due date. Cause I, I came out a little earlier than my due date, but I was a big old chonker. Yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes I think it's mostly in babies who were born past term. I'm both of mine were, but so I don't know if, if this is you know a general thing. But their skin peels off, mm, which is like a fun surprise. <laughs> nobody prepares you. And then right. like a couple <laughs> weeks after bringing your baby home, they molt like a snake. Mm. Whoa. Yeah. I didn't know about that. Yeah, neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> Molting from a larva to its nymph form. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Are you ever afraid they're going to molt again? <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to molt. Maybe it would be great, though. <laughs> I also wonder if this fear of... I mean, so the, this fear of cats imitating baby cries, or sorry, it's not of cats, but maybe we should be afraid of cats mimicking baby cries because there have been some studies that suggest that cats manipulate their cries to sound more like babies. Have you guys heard this? Siamese oh. cats, right? I think it's all cats, but they're, they may be especially good at it. And their cries share a similar frequency as babies. Human and babies? Human babies. I choose to believe this because one of my cats has been keeping me up all night every night. <laughs> yeah, my uh, making imaginary baby sounds. Yeah. And they also, the researchers found that when they compare normal cat sounds to like the, the cat sounds that seem to be closer to a baby cry, uh, people give more urgency to the the ones that sound like a baby cry and, and show more anxiety. So you may want to like feed your cat more when it's crying like a baby. My so. cat does that exactly and manipulates the fuck out of me. Is oh. that, which one? Drexel? Weezy, oh, Weezy. Weezy. I'm a little baby. <laughs> yeah, she, she just goes, do it right back She goes her. up in frequency mm -hmm. when she's trying to get me to feed her mm -hmm. at night when I'm in bed. I'm like, wow, wow. <laughs> she's she's trying to sound like a baby. Maybe it does sound like a baby, and then I'm always like, oh my god! Imagine what a real baby is like if a cat can be <laughs> yeah. this this manipulated. Well, I wonder if they if if it is like an evolutionary thing where it, I mean, the logical conclusion is that then cats learn to talk. Yeah, like the dog Stella, who's pressing those buttons. Where I have a lot of doubt, but I choose to believe that that dog. But if these so if these Margay cats, which the this. The observational studies have seem, seem to indicate that they're learning it from their maternal, uh, the, the maternal cat. Mm -hmm. So right. the, mm -hmm. the mother cat passes it on to her children, and then they, they learn this skill. So I wonder if domesticated cats have learned this over time. And it's right. sort of, um, it could be evolutionary. It could be that we selected for the, the cats that were able to cry like babies. Yeah. We kept more because we were more distressed and fed them more. Yeah. I think that's very possible. But maybe the originally, like some cats just kind of figured this out and then they pass those those genes or that knowledge on to the other cats. I always think it's interesting how like pe domesticated pets, it's like the opposite of evolution because you're like selecting for patheticism <laughs> instead of like actual actually being it able works. to survive. If it, I mean, it works. They have survived. They're yeah. highly successful. Uh, yep. Dogs are more successful than wolves as of now. Right. Uh, yeah. I, but I, I do wonder if like because we have this folklore about creepy creepy baby crying being a trap like you know maybe it's it's our this like instinct telling us that the cats are trying to take advantage of us like it's like warning bells like those cats they're trying to get us Manipulate but we won't us. listen we just yeah. don't, we don't know where the source is the cats were the what's it called the the uh boobak the whole time <laughs> <laughs> 
As humans, we seem to have a particularly strong negative response to imitators. The uncanny valley, something we talk about frequently on the show, is that graph that depicts one's feelings towards a fake image of a person. When the image is cartoonish, like Charlie Brown, we're pretty comfortable. We get more and more comfortable with the image the more human it gets, until suddenly something changes. When the image becomes a little too human-like, but not quite realistic enough, like an animatronic face or CGI nightmare like that dead-eyed The Polar Express movie, our comfort suddenly plummets into the uncanny valley until the image becomes realistic enough to pass as human. Instinctively, we reject things that look similar but aren't quite right in terms of being human. Similarly, we're very afraid of body snatchers, and this is exemplified by Capgras syndrome. Capgras syndrome occurs when there's a disconnect between the amygdala and the part of our brain that processes faces. This can be a result of brain damage, such as that which occurs after a stroke. This causes you to think that a loved one or friend has been replaced by an imposter. You see their face, you recognize them, but there's a disconnect between their face and the emotional feeling of familiarity you normally feel. Therefore, that person feels wrong to you, and you reason that this must be because they've been replaced. There's even a disorder that can make you believe that an entire location has been duplicated. Reduplicative paramnesia is a delusion resulting from frontal lobe damage that causes you to think that a location has either been duplicated or has been removed and relocated to a new place. For example, if you're in your house right now, you might think that this is a duplicated house, exactly the same in every way, except it's in a different city. The leading theory on how this is caused is that damage to the visuospatial cortex, the part of the brain that processes visual and spatial information, causes a disconnect between this visual-spatial information and memory. When we return, we'll talk about a whole lot of fears about a whole lot of holes. We'll be right back. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier, connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. 
It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Now, in this section, I'm going to tell you not to Google something, so you will be spared a pretty gross image, but inevitably, a lot of you will Google it. I know, I see you, but it's not your fault, and to be honest, I'd do it too. This is morbid curiosity, where we know we won't like to see an image, but some strange force compels us to look. Researchers have looked at morbid curiosity and have revealed some seemingly paradoxical findings. Often, the stronger a reaction you have to morbid topics, the more likely you'll be curious about these morbid topics. Those that have a stronger physiological reaction to morbid news were also those who had reported on a survey greater morbid curiosity. And in general, research has shown that people prefer to view morbid images more than neutral ones, especially morbid images that depict socially negative content such as a war scene. Another study found that the stronger your fear of terrorism, the more likely you are to view violent images associated with terrorism. So sometimes our fear seems to drive us towards viewing images as if we think that viewing them will give us useful information to avoid our fears. Instead, these images likely form a feedback loop where we may perceive our fears as more likely, which is called confirmation bias. But sometimes the reaction to fear is avoidance, such as is often the case with phobias. And the phobia we're about to discuss may be one of the most difficult ones to avoid completely. So do you guys know about trypophobia? Oh yeah. Yeah. We've talked about it on Night Call a little bit. It's the fear of holes. Yes. It's a fear or aversion to clusters of small holes or lumps. Even the word cluster just kind of gave me a little <laughs> wiggle in my skin. <laughs> Was it clusters or clusters so close to holes? <laughs> it's a combination. Do you, any of you guys fall anywhere on that spectrum of trypophobia? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. yeah I'm like fine it. with them. I don't care. Yeah. I'm yeah. actually, it, I, it doesn't happen to me. Although I've got to warn you, some of the content in this is it, it goes beyond just trypophobia into total gross out. What um, if I show you that picture of a lotus pod where they photoshopped it onto a breast? Oh, that oh, one's a classic. Come on. Yeah, I've seen that yeah. one. So, they, so a lotus pod is it's the dried seed pod of a, of a lotus plant. And it has all of these little holes that the seeds are in. And that's a common trigger for people with trypophobia. And some sadists photoshopped that picture of the, the seed pod onto uh, a breast. And so it looks like the breast has a bunch of holes in it. What's crazy, though, is if you actually look at the anatomy of the breast, the the milk ducts do look like a bunch of little right. cl- <laughs> clusters of little balls. So it's like inside the breast, it is horrible. But uh, but yeah, that or is cool just an, or cool or cool yeah. or really cool. That's that's right. This show is about embracing our fears and loving and them. All and, of our holes and all of our holes. <laughs> 
And so, seed pods. <laughs> so things like seed pods, sponges, seeds and fruit, and even soap bubbles can trigger trypophobia. And it can cause panic attack-like symptoms in people who have it. So it ranges from just aversion. Well, I don't want to say just aversion. Aversion can be a real serious thing. But it can range from mild aversion to strong aversion to a full-on panic attack. A panic attack is an autonomic nervous system response that can be really hard to control. So this phobia, as are a lot of phobias, is associated with OCD. I have OCD. I don't actually have trypophobia at all, but I can see how it's connected. I remember when I was a kid when something would gross me out, like I had a phobia of mummies and I would see patterns of mummies and everything like beef jerky, a kind of like crusty bread. I would imagine that's like a mummified thing and I couldn't eat it. Phobia of mummies? Yeah. They were dead beef jerky. What's not to hate? Oh, I thought it was cool. <laughs> I was really into mummies. Yeah, so did some of my some some of my peers in sixth grade, and they liked to torture me with pictures of mummies. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, was it like the wrapped up mummy or just the body, the desiccated body? All of it. I mean, all of it was bad. It was all bad. Well, it's like a terrible present. It's yeah, like a it's wrapped a horrible up present. thing that yeah. is the un- best yeah. present of all. Okay, you get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cause of trypophobia isn't full understood, but there are theories. So one theory is that it's an evolutionary biological reflex similar to seeing images of spiders and snakes, which is sort of a our, kind of an adaptation we have where we are automatically scared of certain things that are typically bad for us. And it is possibly an oversensitive alarm to try to avoid disease or parasites. If I have any audience members out there who have trypophobia, this is the part where you might want to skip ahead. I'll probably either just skip the rest of it because we're near the end of the episode. Or if you want to hear the last bit, uh, I'll give you in the show notes, I'll say where you can come back in. But yeah, this is going to be a little gross. I'll give people a grace period to fiddle with their phones. How are you guys doing today? Full, nobody I'm, full of holes? No, no holes at yeah. all. I'm nervous, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you have to tap out, just, uh, just pass out and we'll, we'll drag you out of the room. <laughs> right. So an example of a disease that both triggers trypophobia and may be sort of like... Um, where these kinds of fears may have come from sort of in, in our evolutionary history. Oh, I know what this is going to be. It's the mango worm. Mm-hmm. And it is also known as Cordyloiobia anthropophagia, which means in a uh, human eater. Um, oh. It is found mostly in East and Central Africa. And usually you get infected by coming into contact with contaminated soil or dirty bedding, uh, sometimes contaminated with like fecal matter. And the mango worm fly larva can burrow into the skin of animals, and including humans. And if you get an infection of more than one larva, it looks like a cluster of bumps or small holes that have the larva in them. And it can infect humans. It also infects dogs, uh, which is <clears throat> there's. Yeah, there's a lot of pictures. Again, and I, I told you into in the intro not to Google it. I know yeah, a lot I'm of you. Yeah, I'm not looking this one up. Yeah, I know a lot mm. of you are going to Google it. It's truly very gross. Tash I, just picked up her phone. <laughs> she has to know. It's something where I'm. I'm not even gonna 
include a picture in the show notes just so nobody does an accidental click. But yeah, you can easily Google it. It's just really disturbing. And it's the ones where it's like the infected puppies is pretty bad, too. It's just like, oh, puppies. But oh, I see. Yeah, (laughs) It's the removal that you really want to avoid. It's all of it, I I think. Yeah. But yeah, the removal is especially bad. So yeah, I, I have a high tolerance for parasite photos, medical photos, but even this grosses me out. So I I really, like, if you have any kind of (coughs) sensitivity, I don't, I'm not going to show you guys a picture. That wasn't what I thought you were going to say either. I thought you were going to talk about prions. Oh, prions, like in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't those like little holes in the brain? Yeah, that is true. That's another one. That's why you can't be a cannibal is because it makes you get brain prions. Yeah. Well, also you can't eat, like, uh, if you eat other brains, not just of humans, but other animals, like you can still get prion disease. That's why we can't eat brains and why zombies eat brains. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think that's interesting too, because it says to me that it's not like, like sometimes when you're repulsed by something like that, where you're like, oh, I shouldn't eat a person's brain. It is because your body's yeah, like, that no, could be. not yeah. good for you. It'll give you yeah. prions. Yeah. That, mm. that otherwise, is, everybody yeah. just would. Yeah, it's true. We <laughs> would all just do it, wouldn't we? <laughs> um, but so the an infection by mango worms isn't typically fatal for people, but it can cause like a serious infection. And it can be fatal for small animals. One of the more creative ways of treating it is by plugging up the the larva holes with petroleum jelly, which suffocates the larva and then they come out and and surface so they can breathe, which is, yeah, terrible. Uh, What do they look like? Don't look it up. They just kind of, they look like little barley things. Yeah, they they? look like regular maggots, basically. Maggots. They look like maggots that live in your skin. I mean, if you want me to paint a a picture, it's like a bunch of holes, or it's like a bunch of bumps, and then like when they come out of the skin, it's like a bunch of holes with maggots in it. It's like the lotus seed pod. It's like the lotus seed pod, but with maggots. You know what it it also looks like? I'm sorry, but I'm just gonna say, you know that like, have you guys ever been targeted by the ad of that like sticker you put on pimples? The ad is really horrible because it's one of those squeezy balls with like gel. And it's so it's just a bunch of like oh like the stress ball like you, yeah it's got it's a stress ball it's With got a net. net over it and you squeeze it and yeah. like all the things yeah so I was so like put off that I was being targeted by these because <laughs> I was like well how much do you know about my complexion but it looks it also kind of looks like that where it's huh. like a like raised lump with like I a... see you guys on your phone I'm trying, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to resist try, it try not to lose we painted you a picture yeah, yeah. I, it's yeah. Very, I get it it's like you may be curious what you're gonna find if you look up images of mango worms is exactly what I've described and it's very gross it's just very gross I'm not like that put off by this one I am because I just feel so bad for those puppies <laughs> yeah it's really the dog ones how are round are the holes this is actually a big part of my phobia. oh interesting I th- I'd say they're fairly round because they are like are you more warm. afraid if they're round if they're perfectly round yeah the more kind of uncanny it feels because it's yeah. such a perfect circle because it's like it's it's as if some kind of higher consciousness God. has decided to afflict you yes. with this disease that's interesting yeah yeah maybe the regularity is part of it because that indicates not just sort of a randomized wound, but an infection of multiple organisms right. of similar size and shape. Yeah, they look like they're pretty round, but that 
there's in most of the pictures the it's like they're inflamed so the inflammation is oh, that right. can cause it uniform yeah. yeah i mean i i had one i was terrified once when i was like eight years old or something because for some reason i was sitting waiting in the car for my mom and the front window had started to fog and for whatever reason there was something on the window where the fog like it would fog up but except for these little perfect circles and when my mom came back to the car I was like freaking out and crying because I couldn't deal with the little circles on the window that's so interesting no I mean that's a common thing that's like part of it is like seeing soap bubbles because of the regular shape of the soap bubbles it's like your brain I mean it's it's an um not as an insult but just that your your brain has an oversensitivity where it's like picking up the signal of a bunch of holes and it's seeing that pattern Outside of the context in which it would be useful, like yeah. where a useful context would, would be like you look at your arm, there's a bunch of holes there. That's no good. But, Probably you know, soap yeah. bubbles are OK, but it's it's an overgeneralization of a dangerous pattern yeah. that we know we somehow know, like, yeah, that's not good to have like what looks like an infection by these flies. Yeah. But then you're, you're just like. Your your brain is trying to warn you when it doesn't need to. Watch but out it's... for polka dots. <laughs> They don't, those don't do anything for me, weirdly. I don't like them. What oh. about like a beehive? Would that is it the, no, do the hexagon? I like a beehive. Beehives are okay. Although Ma- when I think about beehives a little too hard, I start <laughs> to get freaked out. I think it's like if there's holes in something that's supposed to have holes in it, that's not scary. Like the top of a salt shaker isn't scary. Or so, is it? So say you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so I now want to talk about how this affects this poor caterpillar that gets infected with Glyptopantelis wasp larva. And this is a case in which the caterpillar probably should have tryptophobia because it's a horrible thing that happens to these little guys. And the Glyptopantelis wasp lives in North America, Central America, and New Zealand. And uh, female Glyptopantelis wasps inject their eggs, up to 80 eggs, into the bodies of caterpillars. The eggs develop and grow, and they feed on the insides of the caterpillar, but they don't kill the caterpillar, at least not yet, because they're taking care not to eat its vital organs, which is actually, it's unusual, but it's not unheard of amongst parasites to do that where they will are you you okay (laughs) did you just look up a photo i just looked up a gif i told you i told you it's like it's not gross it's just like it triggers something yes i just don't like it at all of course you wouldn't so the (laughs) the eggs continue to grow Mm -hmm not eating vital organs so the caterpillar is still alive and the caterpillar starts to bloat up like a horrible water balloon filled with nightmares and eventually what um, Emily is currently freaking out about is that dozens and dozens and dozens of these little things will burst from the caterpillar's body in a horrible spectacle so I'll show you guys do you guys want to see it I mean Emily already did that so Emily you're you're excused you don't have to see it here it is. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Everyone all right? Anyone <laughs> need to take a deep breath? I mean, speaking of scary stories in the dark, like that that was the worst one for me about yeah. the, the woman with the, the spiders. Well, that oh, yeah. spider image, eggs. Weirdly, that image does not freak me out as much as the spider babies when the mom spider has the babies all over its back. Yeah. Oh, interesting. 
That one is the scariest. But, that but, I also, but that one's a sweet story of it, motherhood, it, and yeah. this one is a horrible story of parasites. It is sweet, and I want to overcome whatever uh, internal, you know, bias against having yeah. spiders I have. So what cause... Molly's talking about is often spiders. Scorpions will do this too. Certain centipedes oh, the scorpions also one also. I think it's something about a million tiny right. things on one large. Well, thing. the mm-hmm. babies, the the newly hatched babies, will just hang out on their mother's back for protection for a while. So it's this big cluster of little spider babies and little scorpion babies just kind of hanging out on their backs. Mm-hmm. Just like an adult-sized Yoda covered in baby Yoda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oddly enough, these parasitic wasp larvae bursting out of the caterpillar do not kill it. The caterpillar is still alive. And the, the larvae actually, they help keep the caterpillar alive doing this really gruesome surgical hapdash job where they leave behind, they, they molt as they come out of the caterpillar and they leave behind their exoskeleton, which plugs up all the holes, which prevents the caterpillar from bleeding to death. Whoa. So, so they like form a scab. They like leave scabs, basically. Uh, basically, yeah. So as it's it's functionally, it, it it's just the function of like as they're popping out of the caterpillar as they're molting. So they leave behind that that molted exoskeleton that basically plugs up the caterpillar's wounds, and so. But they're still not done with this poor freaking caterpillar. <laughs> so the the wasp larvae want to grow into wasps. And to do that, they have to weave a protective cocoon. And while they're in this cocoon, they're very vulnerable to predation. The caterpillar will help the wasp larva out by weaving its own silk cocoon around them. And it will stand watch over the larva and protect them until its very last breath. And you might be thinking, why would the caterpillar do this? Like, what's in it for the caterpillar? The answer is nothing's in it for the caterpillar. The caterpillar is being controlled from the inside Mm -hmm. by a couple of these larvae who are taking one for the team, for the rest of the larvae, by staying inside the caterpillar head. And um, basically, they are mind-controlling the caterpillar, as a lot of parasites do. And I don't know what the exact... I'm not even sure we know yet what the precise mechanism is of how they control the caterpillar's brain. But often, which what is the case is they have some kind of chemical excretion that changes the balance of uh, neurotransmitters in the caterpillar's brain, and then that causes some behavior to to mm-hmm. go off or to become exaggerated. So like cocoon weaving is a regular behavior for the caterpillar, so it'll weave this cocoon in a context that doesn't make sense. As for attacking predators that like staying watch over the larva and attacking predators that come near, that is such a bizarre caterpillar behavior. I don't know how they do that. It, mm-hmm. That's crazy. But uh, yeah, so the caterpillar becomes a zombie bodyguard who attacks any predators who want to snack on or attack the larva. And it greatly increases the chance that the larva will develop into fully grown wasps. And the caterpillar will eventually starve to death, full of plugged up larva holes. Uh, no. Totally <laughs> thankless job. Yeah. Wow. That's really sad. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It's your zombie bodyguard and nanny that just eventually dies. Oh. Yeah. It feels like some kind of, I, I, can't, I can't fill in all the blanks, but it feels like some kind of metaphor about like... Um, like alt weeklies or something. 
Um, that's brutal. Poor caterpillar. I know. Well, do you guys want to do some palate cleansers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so welcome back to everyone who has skipped ahead. Um, we talked about horrible things. Damn, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, first, first palette, actually it's just a a news item. And then I got a couple of cool messages on Instagram I want to talk about. So the news item is, uh, the Audubon Society came out with an article asking the tough question of what is a burb? And they try to (laughs) define what a burb is. And I'm very, very grateful to this article because they attribute the coining of the term burb to my pro bird rights account, which (laughs) I, I had thought I had coined it. And I remember, I, I remember being the first one to do it. And I am just thrilled to finally get media recognition to my contribution to society. By the Audubon Society. By the Audubon Society. So this is a self-promotion tour where I go around bragging about how I invented the word burb. And I think I'm owed like $5 million in royalty. That sounds right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm crunching the numbers right now. That sounds right. Cool. So I'm rich now, apparently. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, thank you, Audubon Society. That's pretty great. Uh, I think the, so I, I can help out a little bit with the science of what a burb is versus a bird. They try to kind of define like, okay, what's a burb? What's just a regular bird? Correctly, they're saying like, if the bird is too big, like a, an, os- an ostrich, an ostrich isn't a burb. Um, but there's another thing, which is that the roundness quotient of the bird is directly correlated with how much of a burb it is. So that that's a helpful tool as well. I also got a couple of cool messages on Instagram. First of all, Instagram user All I Want Are Windows is a food scientist, and she wanted to talk about the recent episode Leftovers, where we talked about the movie The Killer Shrews, where so in this this B horror movie, scientists try to make giant food to end world hunger, but they accidentally make giant shrews. Whoopsies. <laughs> so so we were we had briefly talked about you know why why you would make giant food you know and we we talked about that that there's that other movie that had Matt Damon in it where they shrink people down oh, to yeah. try to what, what was, was it called um, the shrinkable Matt Damon what was that movie called? I don't remember. It's this is gonna drive me crazy. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. saw it wasn't as bad as people said it was. Exactly, Alexander Payne movie. I Downsizing. Downsizing. Yeah. So this is from Instagram user All I Want Are Windows. She says, hey, I listened to the Leftovers episode and got so psyched because I love Creature Feature and I love Savers. So I had uh, Savers uh, hosts on the show. So she says, I had to weigh in on the shrinking issue because it's a fun thought experiment. With our understanding of electron fields and how we believe at this point that much solid matter is actually full of empty space, it stands to reason that if we develop shrink technology, it would simply condense our electron orbits and not reduce our mass. So by shrinking ourselves, we could do agriculture on a much smaller scale and feed more people by producing the same more food in a tiny space. But conversely, the challenge of enlarging things seems like much more advanced and complicated technology technology. Since matter can neither be created nor destroyed, an enlarging machine would theoretically expand the electron orbits of the subject, and that seems problematic to their structure and integrity. And an enlarged hypothetical strawberry wouldn't have any more calories than it had when it was normal-sized. So all that effort of inventing that technology gives you no increase in harvest and yield. And then she says, thanks for humoring me. Thanks for sending my mind down a physics wormhole. Hope you see this. I did. I don't have Twitter, and I wasn't sure how to contact you. 
you. Well, you sure did contact me. <laughs> it worked. Um, and then, yeah, so she, that is, I think, a really good point that she brings up. Question then is like a, a genetically modified apple or strawberry. So, you know, like when, like, there's obviously like GMO strawberries that are gigantic. Mm hmm. Is that the same amount of calories as like an organic strawberry? No, because I think that in that case, it is the the cellular growth of the apple has been modified. So it is, there is more calories. It's just a hypothetical growth rate, like you do a growth oh, right. rate. So it already apple. exists. Okay, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like in any in domesticated food and animals, we can futz with their genes such that they grow beyond their normal size. So, mm -hmm. like chickens, broiler chickens mm -hmm. have uh, basically we've shut off some of the genes that say, "Hey, stop growing. That's enough." So they mm -hmm. grow these like huge muscles that mm -hmm. we then eat, and it's horrifying. But yeah, so that's yikes! <laughs> yikes! I got this message from Samantha regarding our recent episode. It's cold out, remember to breathe through your butt, where we talked about <laughs> fluffy horses and how horses are measured using hands. And I'm not a horse person, so I was I didn't know much about how you measure horses. Apparently you measure in hands from the withers of the horse, which is like the, the ridge along the neck. And I asked on the show, why don't you use a measuring stick? Our horse is afraid of measuring sticks. So this is Samantha. She says, horse girl here, been listening for a while, finally had information to add. The hand measurements is only in North America, actually. The rest of the world still likes to use centimeters. We do the top of the shoulders as it is the highest point, stays consistent as the head and neck goes up and down, and lots of horses are not a fan of our measuring sticks, even the ones with the hand measurements. I love the fuzzy pony facts. I had no idea about their special blood. It is a fact I plan on sharing. Thank you for all your hard work. Uh, and then I asked her, why aren't horses a fan of measuring sticks? And she said, horses are prey animals, so most of them are spooky by nature. That is what kept them alive. Plus, they actually have nerve endings up in their wither area that keeps them from moving forward, so it is a kill spot, and male horses, stallions, will grab there when they mount mares for breeding. So that is super interesting, Samantha. I really appreciate that. I had no idea that the withers was such a sort of sensitive subject for horses. And I, I guess, like, if, if I think about it, if some, like, creature that wanted to ride me came at me with a yardstick i'd be kind of pissed off too that makes sense put it on put it in my withers area that's a that's a uh. personal area the withers yeah <laughs> so do you guys have anything to plug we've got our podcast yeah just night call night call i was just on that podcast yeah um check it out we did a little pod exchange we um, did and we're right here on the how stuff network I haven't moved from this chair in over two hours. Hey, <laughs> think we've been here. <laughs> no, don't give anybody a peek behind the curtain. We're, yeah. all, we're all fresh. We're and floating in space. Yes, <laughs> we are in the information void. Mm -hmm. And we're all on social media too, which is the same thing. But I met uh, Emily Yoshida on Twitter. I'm Mr. Tess Lynch. I'm Molly Lambert. Thank you guys so much for joining me. This has been excellent. Yeah. So if you want to send me a message, it doesn't have to be horses and giant strawberries, whatever you want, on Instagram or Twitter. It's Creature Feature Pod on Instagram and Creature Feet Pod on Twitter. That's F-E-A-T, not F-E-E-T. That's something very different. In <laughs> fact, exciting news. There is now a Creature Feet Pod. I did not create this. This is someone else. And apparently it is full of creature feet. So check that one out, too. Okay. Uh, <laughs> And 
thank you guys so much for listening. My New Year's resolution is to keep making episodes for you and to collect more worms to please the queen worm who's controlling my brain. One way you guys could really help is by subscribing, downloading episodes, leaving me a nice rating and review, or leaving me some worms. I love worms! Thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super slimy, squirmy song, Exolumina. Creature Features, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Worms Day! I mean Wednesday! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Thank you so good. Thank you guys so much. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee. Sounds perfect. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits. LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.